Hey, yo, and here we go. Another episode of We Talk Comics is on the air and in your ear. I am Mo, and uh, with me is, uh, is Brett, because it seems like Brett's always with me, so that's not a surprise. Also with me is Keith, and, and that's sometimes a surprise. <laughs> so, uh, some, and, and even less, uh, also sometimes a pleasant surprise. But in this case, it's not at all about me, Keith, or Brett. We have a very special guest on, Brett uh let everybody know just the wonderful man that is joining us that you set up. You set up this interview, so I'll let you you do the proper introductions because I know this is a big one for you. Well, you know, I, I mean, we've we've all we've all enjoyed his uh, his work, hate, and uh, and he's a man who's done numerous other projects. I mean, I just read Reset. You know, neat stuff. There's. All sorts of projects that, that he's done, Fantagraphics. He's got the new project uh, just out, which is the Credo, the story of Rose Wilder Lane. So, ladies and gentlemen, Peter Bag. Hello, hello. Great to be here. Well, we are super happy to have you, uh, being longtime fans. So, so yeah, it's always nice to talk. Uh, geez, where do we start? Where do we start? Well, why don't we start with, uh, with Credo? Okay, sounds good to me. Tell us a little bit about that, how it came about, because I know that uh, I know that you've been working on on some of the, uh, you know, you know, some of the kind of the biographies and such. Right. Well, Credo is the third and probably last, so I guess I should refer to them as a trilogy. It's uh, the third of three biographies that I had written that are, that all three of which were published by John and Quarterly, who are based in Montreal. And um, and the theme of these three biographies is all three are about women, two of whom were, for the most part, writers, but all of them, in one degree or another, were activists. Uh, they all had their pet causes. And, um, and all three of them were most active, I would say, in the years between the two world wars. And for uh, reasons that I can't even entirely remember, I became particularly fascinated just not only in that that time period, um, but particularly women, like the, the three women I wrote about, just the way they conducted their lives and went about their business during that time. They were shockingly free and and fearless. They just pretty much did whatever they wanted to do. The fact that they were women didn't stop them from doing anything, at least in their own mind. And uh, and all three of them, while they, while, and the three women, I should say, too, is the first one I wrote about was Margaret Sanger, who is the birth control advocate. The second one was uh, Zora Neale Hurston, who is an African-American novelist and anthropologist. Um, and the third is about Rose Wilder Lane, as you mentioned. That's the newest book. And Rose Wilder Lane is best known as the daughter of Laura Ingalls Wilder, who wrote is famous for the Little House on the Prairie books. Although Lane herself had a heavy hand in writing and editing those Little House books. She didn't take any credit for it. She didn't want any credit for it. But uh, she helped her mother greatly, in not just not just putting those books together, but getting them published. Because Lane herself was already, before her mother even started working on the Little House books, Lane herself was already not only a professional author, but an extremely successful one. She's little known now, but back in the 20s and 30s, she was one of the best-selling and highest-paid authors in America. Wow. Yeah, it it, seem, it seems like uh, so different for you to be taking on projects like this, given your earlier work, I guess. Right. Back in my early work, which was utterly ridiculous. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, we yeah, love it. I was, you know, started out, I was very much inspired, more than anything else, I was inspired by underground comics and, you know, particularly Robert Crumb. But also visually, I was very inspired by people like Basil Wolverton and Big Daddy Roth and uh, and Warner Brother cartoons, especially Bob Clampett's cartoons, which would explain the very exaggerated expressions and, and rubbery limbs that uh, I seem to be famous for. <laughs> can, I, can I jump in for a second, Brett? Yep. Uh, I, I'm curious because you, know, you talked, I just talked about your style. We're used to biographical comics and and these kind of historical comics being a much more realistic style. So how do you feel your your kind of more exaggerated style fits with 
Well, that's a that that is something that uh, what you just raised is something that comes up a lot. Um, not everybody feels that way this way, and certainly I don't. But a lot of people feel like since I'm writing about these important people, and I am taking my subject matter seriously, that therefore the art should look serious, whatever that would entail. <laughs> you know, I, I guess people are thinking of something along the lines of the way, uh, um, you know, like, for example, those uh, Representative Lewis biographies um, that came out recently, um, the March. way they're drawn, just, yeah, March. It's like very realistic, which at the same time, I suppose to the average reader, the average person, they think that art like that is more reverential to the subject. Mm. Um, there's a lot of people who, even shockingly, some people who, I, I would argue that they're invested in feeling this way, but there are people who had even read my work and still, simply because the way I drew it, can't shake this feeling that I'm making fun of the subject matter, which... It, I don't know how anybody could think that after they read it. I, I have nothing but admiration <laughs> for all three of my subjects. Each one of these books took me three years to put together. You know, it's like a wow. solid year of research, you know, and for to, for me to invest that much time and make that little money off of it too, <laughs> just to, what, to ridicule somebody? That is, I don't know how anybody could uh, think that. I did, at, like, right when I started working on the first one, um, Women Rebel. I did ponder for a second, either either maybe collaborating with an artist or tr altering my style somewhat, um, in, in anticipation of people, you know, some people feeling this way. But uh, but then I thought, no, that's ridiculous. You know, I've spent my lifetime developing this particular style, and I draw the way I do because I like it. That's the that I like the way I draw. If I didn't like the way I draw, I would draw a different way. <laughs> but um, but yes, of course, when the book first came out, for example, and this was the funniest response I got was um, when Jordan Quarterly sent a copy of the book to Art Spiegelman of Mao's fame. Mm -hmm. He told me that when he first saw it, he was like, hmm, Margaret Sanger's, the Margaret Sanger story by Peter Bagg. And then he thought, what next? The Dr. Martin Luther King story by Don Martin? <laughs> 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 but whenever I tell anybody that story, everybody always laughs, but then they'd say, oh my God, I'd buy that book in a minute. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Absolutely. Actually, so I'm curious then, because you're talking about how, you know, people are, are, perceiving it as you know from the outside people who see your art style but how about your actual fans how about how have your fans taken to those people that have been with you for a long time and are fans of of, of your previous work taken to this subject matter uh well it, that is difficult to gauge you know particularly the comics i did in the 90s hate all those hate comics those those still are the best-selling and best known work that I've done. And because those that's the best selling work, it's obvious that a lot of people haven't continued to follow everything that I've done. People who have, who do continue to buy everything I've done, you know, they said very nice things. I haven't uh, from from longtime fans of mine, longtime followers of my work, none of them have complained about these books or said, Why are you doing this? They all seem to enjoy it. Um but at the same time, my biggest problem is how so many people who read my comics 20 years ago seem to be completely unaware of what I'm working on now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, I, all I could do is try to promote it and self-promote the things as much as I possibly can. Um, that being said, because of this subject matter, it has attracted the attention of uh, people who otherwise would never touch any of my work, particularly like with Margaret Sanger, of course, there's lots of women's studies majors who buy it, and they seem to buy it in spite of the artwork. Um, it's very, <laughs> it's very interesting when I have, uh, and and then the same with, uh, uh, with Zora Hurston. Like it's being purchased by African American uh, studies majors, you know, and and the response is the same. Like uh, there's there'll be always a woman at a comic show and she'll be cruising through the comic con, just look, glancing around. Maybe, maybe she's specifically looking for my book, maybe not. And it just simply catches her eye, but she'll see 
Women Rebel, the Margaret Sanger story, will come right up to my table, look at it, open it up, hand me the 20 bucks or whatever it is, maybe have me sign it, and then leave as fast as possible. And she will not even glance at a single other thing on my <laughs> table. It's like everything else on my table has cooties. And then it's, and then it's the same, too, with uh, – and I'm generalizing greatly, but it's pretty much the same, too, with Zora Hurston, where it would be a black person strolling down the – of the lane, their eye catches uh, the Zora Hurston book. Same thing. Zoom right over, flick through it, hand me the twenty bucks, and then run away as fast as I can. That's uh, that's interesting. Um, and, yes. You know, and I can see it too, right? Because because I know that that sometimes when you do when you do work, because because I mean, you go through and and you you evolve, right? And and as you do the work, it's it's not that you're not proud of it, but yeah, it it, it can appeal to a different audience. And I think it's even the same time same type of thing on the podcast. You know, some of the podcasts that we do don't appeal to different levels, but it's just like you can get in trouble for having that podcast or or that book because it's just like, hey, we were looking for this person, not this person. <laughs> you know, right? Yes, yes. It's um. This may or may not touch on what you were just talking about, but this is something that I've become very aware of recently, particularly when I talk to cartoonists who came of age, first started reading, buying and reading comics, say, in the ladies, late 80s, early 90s. Um, and, and I might know them because they're fans of my work, and they would tell me I started reading your work as far back as Weirdo, when you, when you were editing Weirdo with, with The Crumbs. Um, which is very underground, indie, you know, very non-mainstream work. But so many of these, again, I call them younger guys. Some of them are even <laughs> in their 40s now. But uh, something that started to confuse me, and I'd ask them, so I started asking them specifically about it, is I would say, so when you were young and, and first started going to comic shops, you would buy Weirdo as well as, like, Love and Rockets and Neat Stuff. And they'd go, yes. But then I'd say, but you also, at the same time, you were buying not just the Ninja Turtles, but even the bad ripoffs of the Ninja Turtles. Mm -hmm. And all of that, that that black and white boom, you know, that the Rockheads, all that. And they go, yes. And I go, and you like both of it? You really enjoyed Weirdo and Love and Rockets? And you also thoroughly enjoyed these bad ripoffs of the Ninja Turtles? And they're like, yes. Yes, I loved all of it. I still do. It's, it's just the stuff I was weaned on. I love all of it. <laughs> yep. I, that's exactly the way we are. Like, I cannot okay. tell you the the geriatric gangrene jujitsu gerbils, you know, the the adolescent radioactive black belt hamsters. Of course, I mean, they're one of my favorites. But yeah, I was there at, at that exact same time. I remember going to the store and looking specifically for black and white books. And I mean, right. I was a I was a teenager. I mean, you know, probably 15, 16. I, I shouldn't have even been buying half the books that I was buying. <laughs> but, you know, I was doing it because it was just like, ooh, black and white. And, and hey, talking animals. But, I mean. Right. No, it's the same with my, I had, uh, I had two nephews. One of whom, the older one now, is a professional animator. But when, back when he was a teen, him and his little brother, I was visiting them. And they live in a, they live in a small town in the Catskill Mountains. And they say, hey, Uncle Pete, guess what? Our town has a comic shop now. And they even have your stuff. You want to go check it out? And I was like, yeah, sure. So I drove my two nephews uh, to this comic shop. And uh, and I was talking to the, the store owner. And then both of my nephews, they both bought one comic book. And I just just because I don't want to insult anybody, I'm not going to say what comic books they were. But they both were generally fairly well-known indie black and white comics. And I was like, oh, you guys like that stuff? And they go, yeah, this is great. They go, you should read it. So when we got back to my aunt's house, I was reading the comics that my nephews just bought. I thought they were the worst pieces of crap I've ever <laughs> read in my life. But they, both of them were like, what's wrong with you? These comics are great. And I said, oh, my God, my nephews have zero standards. <laughs> At the same time, though, both, like I said, both, I don't want to say which ones they were. They both were very popular black and white comics at the time. It's it's interesting though because I mean and I know that 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 you know tastes definitely change and that and there there is a point where I I think that you look at quality and I mean 
there are books like that. Like I, I doubt that I could go back and read geriatric angry jujitsu gerbils and actually think that it's a good comic. Right. But nowadays, and I and I know because because you know I think it would hold up. I think oh it would hold oh up. yeah sure. <laughs> but but that's one of the things for me is that in this case hate does hold up from now to when I read it back then, and so I do think that there's a significant quality uh, uh, difference in that case. Well, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I've, I've been uh, I'm rereading some hate issues, and it's I have the same experience when I read uh, Catcher in the Rye, uh, to make a strange comparison, uh, that I, like, Buddy at that time when I was reading him was very much my world. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, 20, 25 years on, um, of course, his he's still there. He's like the, he is still the way he was in the in the early '90s, and I'm looking back on that time. So, right. do you do like, now? This hate was semi autobiographical, or yes. how 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 far how close? Well, my generic answer, but it's to that question. <laughs> although it's pretty accurate, is I would say that with specifically with all those hate stories, I would say it, it's. One third things that actually happened to me, another third things that happened to friends and acquaintances that were related to related to me, and then another third just completely made up. Although I'd always be surprised with some of the things that I would completely make up. I sometimes would think, all right, I think I went overboard with this one. Nobody's going to find this particular bit of behavior plausible but without fail somebody would say oh i did that <laughs> <laughs> so something i've found about probably all fiction writers unless you, you work in pure fantasy i think uh, almost all fiction writers have discovered that if you can if you can conceive of something in your head that meant that somebody did it <laughs> somebody else not only conceived of the same thing but they actually acted it out they actually did that thing that's it's kind of scary <laughs> yes yeah yeah it's interesting because mo mo and i were talking about this and and we were talking about the idea of kind of being a little bit wild and free and letting your urges take over and how often and now especially we don't do that so much and it's just like oh but if we did that yeah, I guess we would be buddy. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, but yeah, buddy, of course, is me without a filter as well. Yeah. He always was, you know. He would, and so it like so I would relate to the things that he would do or say. I would understand or relate to his impulse, and so did all of literally all of the readers. They wouldn't be reading hate comics and enjoying Buddy Bradley if they didn't relate to him. Even I routinely heard from female readers saying when I'd say, "What do you, what do you like about hate?" They'd women readers would say, I totally relate to Buddy. That's who I'm relating to when I'm reading the hate comics. Um, it's Buddy is the one that uh, is doing and saying things that I relate to, not even more than the female characters. Um, but yeah, but he was me without a filter. You know, it's because, you know, if I said every thought, if anybody said every thought that came to their head, they'd have no friends. <laughs> <laughs> So it's so, me. Yeah, so he's yeah. Really me. <laughs> if you accepted the term misanthrope and just went with it. Right. <laughs> but that's the thing about Buddy is is that like, almost against all odds, he's incredibly lovable. You know, and it's 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 not it's not something you can really necessarily I, I don't know uh, craft a character like that. <laughs> you know, it has to it you have to just know it or experience it. Otherwise, it wouldn't come across as as genuine right well you know how can if, if some if the readers if a reader is relating to him then what would that say about that particular reader if at the same time they hated buddy you know that would mean they hate themselves some people might everybody at one time or another might hate themselves but you don't hate yourself all the time <laughs> you know we all have egos and uh, and buddy has an ego obviously he's like all ego and all id at the same time <laughs> Well, I mean, I don't, I don't hate myself, but how much am I ashamed of myself? Let's not go there. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you're right. There you go. <laughs> Catholic guilt without the Catholicism. That's what yeah, that's basically. It, yeah. <laughs> so it's it's been what eight years now since we've seen Buddy. But yeah, probably even more than that. After hate, after like all through the '90s, I pretty much worked on hate 
all the time. You know, I would do side projects and other things, you know, illustrations, what have you. But yeah, all, I dedicated 90% of my work life to, to hate comics back then. Um, by the year 2000, roughly, I was getting so many other offers, uh, lucrative offers that I felt like I had to take advantage of them. And I also never intended to just draw one character, you know, I never, you know, I was like, I used to, even with comic strips that I really liked, uh, daily comic strips, I used to always wonder, are all of these daily comic strip authors, are they all victims of their own success? Cause I couldn't, <laughs> I just couldn't imagine 50 years of drawing Garfield, you know, <laughs> or, or 50 years of drawing any one character. So I de always wanted to step away from Buddy sooner or later. At the same time, though, I wanted to keep the character alive. So what I would do all through the aughts is once a year, I would put out a book called Hate Annual, which basically was I'd make up one usually relatively short Buddy Bradley story. And the rest I would, would just be reprints of other work I was doing from hither and yon. Um, but, I, you know, it just, it just seemed – I was still very um, – inspired i still really enjoy this idea of having buddy continue to age show him now married with a kid you know just going through you know the life's evolutions that everybody or at least i was going through i still wanted to recount major events in my life filtered through buddy but you know i was the, i was losing the audience people were less interested um and it was you know it's just because people who read hate back in the 90s they themselves grew up and uh got married, had kids, had mortgages, and all, all of those things by themselves pretty much take you away from making your weekly or monthly visit to a comic shop. You know what I mean? For that reason alone, people tend to outgrow or distance themselves from the world of comics. Comics are very much, I've noticed, hardcore comic readers are um, tend to be uh, people in their 20s. And, and, and like everybody else, People in their 20s, they want to read about themselves. So if all of a sudden a comic character is older, married, has a kid, has a job, a career, they just they don't relate. So therefore, they're not interested. But of course, when I was doing hate, it was especially the early hates. It was Buddy was in his tw early 20s. He was in a love triangle. He had his wacky buddies. So it was tailor made for uh, for the audience, for the people that did go to comic shops, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I'm on this podcast with two of my wacky buddies from. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Everybody, just like I was saying before, like with uh, that women's studies major who would turn on the brakes when she saw a woman rebel by that book, not look at anything else, or uh, the, the black person strolling by buys a copy of the Zora Hurston book, doesn't even look at anything else. People just people are always looking for mirrors, and and I'm and it's true of everybody. It always reminds me of a time I was on on an air flight, and this airline they had an offer. They said oh, we're going to this was like maybe ten years ago. They they passed out uh, these little it, it looked like little laptop type things, and they said we're past. This is a new thing we're trying. Um, each one of these devices, they said you could use it on the airplane. It's not connected to the internet. Each one of these devices, you have a choice of like seven movies. And it was like seven very popular, recent, fairly new movies, right? So, and I didn't get one. I just wasn't interested. But most people on the plane, they all ordered one of these devices and they had seven movies to choose from, you know, mainstream popular movies. So I remember I went to the bathroom and as I was going back to my seat in the bathroom, Pretty much, uh, well, every kid was watching, you know, a Disney flick. Um, but, uh, like, every adult male was watching something starring Harrison Ford. Um, every every young woman was watching a, a rom-com um, with, you know, whatever star was big at the time, Jennifer Aniston, let's say. Every black person was watching a, a, a Tyler Perry movie. It's like, and I just thought, and I was just thinking, Everybody's just looking at themselves. Every single person on this plane, when they had this, the seven movies to choose from, every single one of them chose the one that was about somebody where the protagonist looks just like them. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like everybody was looking at themselves. There wasn't a single exception. They all chose a movie that had someone that looked like themselves in it. So, so it really was like as I walked back that I, everybody was looking into a mirror. 
that I don't know how I can watch black exploitation now. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I'm trying to course, wonder. I'm wondering what all the porn I watch now means. That's about me. But. Well, of course, I mean, of course, with, when you think of all the movies that I mean, I've seen rom coms, I've seen Disney movies, you know, I've seen uh, uh, black exploitation movies. So it's like, of course, there are exceptions. It was just interesting that on this flight, yeah. when you had a limited selection, and also it was newish movies, it was movies that you couldn't even get on video yet. That that's exactly everybody's go to, mm-hmm. you know. Oh, that's fascinating, actually. That's almost like a sociological experiment, you know, that they didn't even know they were, they were, they were performing. Right, right. So I'm interested um, after afterwards, and I mean, you know, I, I like I say, I just finished reading Reset, rereading Reset, and um, and like you know, you got Apocalypse Nerd. You you've worked for DC, you've worked for Marvel. Um, were you when you were taking? I assume some of those were the lucrative offers, but uh, were you looking for different, really different things as well? Um, well, let's put it this way: I was very open to doing very different things. Um, so when I would get, uh, and well, with uh, Marvel, and again, this is like again going back at that time around a little after two thousand, um, when an editor from Marvel called me up. He was pretty clear about what he wanted from me. He wanted me to, to just do my own take on, well, first was Spider-Man. And it was mainly because the Spider-Man movie was coming out and they just wanted to flood the market with as many Spider-Man related pro- um, products as possible. So I think mine was, I think mine was like one of 12 Spider-Man related titles that came out the month the movie, that movie came <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but he he clearly thought of me doing more or less my own satirical take on Spider-Man. And the original plan, too, was we were going to do that with every movie. Like it, back then, er, the plan was every summer another Marvel movie would come out. So the next one that was going to come out was Ang Lee's Hulk. So I did a Hulk story. But that wound up. But, but then everything, I don't know if you know this story, but that's when uh, uh, whoever owned Marvel... They then, now that the stock went through the roof because of these movies, uh, they sold it to a company that just simply wanted nothing to do with my take on the Hulk or any of their other properties. (laughs) They just wanted me to go away. (laughs) So I finished the Hulk story because I was paid in advance for it, and it was good money. But Marvel sat on it for over 10 years and then released it years later. Ironically, after Disney bought it, Disney was fine with releasing <laughs> But the other, the other company who, uh, in, in the interim, who owned Marvel, they, they were, I think they were primarily uh, a clothing manufacturing company. And so they literally bought Marvel for the underoo rights. <laughs> you know, they, so they wanted to keep, it was all about, so they were really careful about protecting the brand, you know, while manufacturing underwear for little boys to put on. <laughs> yeah, but I was the weird one. <laughs> you know, it's it's interesting to think about, you know, how the how people were looking at at your work for for characters that they don't expect. I mean, I would I imagine that like Marvel Comics fans, Spider-Man fans are even more protective of that character and their interpretation of how that character should be than, yes. you know, and, and that's like, so how do they kind of take to your, to your, your, the mega Malina, uh, I'll mispronounce mega it. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, they, well, again, I've told the story many times that, that one standalone issue that I did of Spider-Man, the megalomaniacal Spider-Man. That's the word. Uh, that sold about 50,000 copies. And that, so with that 50,000, that sold, I would say, like the very best selling issue of hate was at the most 40,000 copies. So that issue, that one issue I did of Spider Man was the best selling comic book I'd ever done. But it also, at the same time, was and remains the all time worst selling Spider Man comic. <laughs> <laughs> So that's how that, that is how Spider Man fans responded to it is by not buying it, or half of them did, I guess. You know, a lot of them were just simply completists. Like, like I said, that the uh, Hulk comic that I bought, that I drew, that hadn't been released for twelve years. Somebody, some fanatical Hulk fan, some Hulk completist, he caught wind of it, 
And he wrote to me and he said, uh, can I buy the original art? All of it. He wanted every single page of it. Wow. And, uh, and I told him, uh, well, you know, this might not ever even come out in print. So you'd be owning original art to something that nobody, there's a chance nobody will ever see it. And uh, he said, I don't care. And I said, are you just a big fan of mine or are you a Hulk completist? And he said the latter. He goes, I barely know who you are. He goes, I just have, have to have everything Hulk. And he gave me really good money. He paid me very good money for the original art. And I can't even remember who that guy is, but uh, he had to have every single page. Wow. That's, yeah. Yeah, I guess you don't think about the, the completionists out there. I mean, I mean. I, or I guess maybe I think about it from from the other angle, where it's like there are people that I'm completionist of, but it's more people as opposed to characters. Right, right. But yeah, and and you and you're right too that uh, not everybody, but yeah, a lot of um, longtime readers of familiar characters or even lesser known characters, yeah, they get very attached not only to the characters but those characters being written and those titles being written and drawn in a certain way. And they really don't like when people mess with it, you know, they get, they get very upset. And back then in the late nineties and early aughts, Marvel was really struggling. So I don't know if you remember this, but uh, just for that reason, they were just like, you know, we got to start thinking outside the box. So you might recall they had Mike Allred drawing uh X-Men, do you remember that? That's right, yep. Yeah, also, they just let Allred do his own take on it. And, you know, in Allred, it's not like his drawing is really weird, but it is unique and distinctive. It doesn't look like your, it certainly doesn't look like your typical Marvel stuff. And you wouldn't think that Marvel Comics fans would particularly object to Allred's artwork or his writing style, but they did. They had a fit. So some people bought it a lot because it was, it was, in addition to, you still had the regular X-Men coming out, but then along with it was this uh, Bullrin's take on the X-Men. And, uh, and yeah, most most hardcore X-Men readers were, hated it. They just absolutely hated it. Do you, do you think it, that it, kind of... Uh... Sorry, because I just want to get in here with this. Because I, it, it's interesting to me because you, mean, you mentioned that that person said, oh, I don't, barely know who you are, but to, uh, I know that you don't have the the following that some of the people, you know, some of the big artists had at the Calgary Expo. But to, to certain people there, the, the way we heard them talking about you and what they're saying about you is, you were the biggest star to those people. Is, is that is that kind of a common experience for you at these at these events? Um, well, like you mean like, like that comic, the Calgary, yeah. Comic? That we Calgary Comic, yeah, Calgary Comic Expo, or any expo like that. Yeah. Where, well, yeah, where well, you're, you're not you're not going to have the familiarity of an Adam Kubert, but you but to the people who are there to see Peter Bag, that right. you're you're the biggest star to them. Well, this is a very strange thing. My experience, at least, with comic conventions is, as you know, that that's that's largely a mainstream show. Most of the people like you know they like Marvel, DC. Um, Star Trek, Star Wars, stuff like that. You know, just mainstream genre fiction, and uh, and those and they those tend to be the bigger shows, the much bigger shows. At the same time, there's more and more of these indie shows like Mocha and SPX and Cake. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with a lot of heard about these shows too. Mm-hmm. And those shows are all about indie artists, so it's not about cosplay and superheroes or very very little of that it's more about people you know writing doing comics primarily just as a form of self-expression and uh, and it does tend to be more autobiographical things like that and it's and it is dominated the the big two at shows like that are fanographics and drawing quarterly (laughs) (laughs) you know it's just so everything's relative so if i go to a show like that um Pretty much everybody there knows who I am. You know, it's like there's very few people who at those shows who barely know who I am. Interestingly, I never get invited to those shows anymore. I used to, but now I'm never invited as a guest to those shows. Wow. You know, I can I can only speculate as to why. You know, I I, I noticed that you know they they have a compared to like the the mainstream shows they have a much smaller budget, and and I think that if they're and, and these shows too, they're they're run by people who are very progressive minded. So I think this is my when I when I run this suspicion by people, 
nobody disagrees with me, <laughs> but it is but it is speculation, and that is with their limited budget that they are going to bring in younger people, if as much as they can bring in bring in as guests women, people of color, things like that. They're they're, they're like very invested in in doing that thing of diversifying the show, and you know, and I'm an old I'm an old straight white guy, you know, it's, and I've been I think probably feel like oh we've had that guy enough. <laughs> enough of his ilk so but instead i get i'm invited to more mainstream shows than ever and might as well take advantage of it like the show that i met you guys at but um at a show like that i would say that maybe like what a hundred thousand people went to that show about that yeah yeah and i would say uh, you know so out of a hundred thousand one out of a thousand about a hundred people knew who I was who <laughs> came through those doors. <laughs> but, you know, but those 100 people, are, that 100 people at those big shows, they're fantastic. And I, even though, again, even though hardly anybody at those big shows knows who I am, I make way more money at those shows than I do at the indie cons. You know, out of those 100 people, they come up to me, they'll all buy at least something, you know, I'll make 20, 100, 500 bucks off of them. Whereas at these indie shows, Everybody knows who I am, and I'm lucky to squeeze five bucks out of one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Keith, it's your turn. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no worries. Uh, I, I think we, we've we've traveled far from uh, from there. Uh, <laughs> I did have a, a I had a fun experience where one a friend of mine who's an artist um, was so excited to get a sketch from you, Peter, and um, but the the big one of the big name artists from Marvel that was there. Uh, Phil Noto couldn't find a, I couldn't find a thing to tell this guy like oh this is what he's worked on that you might have seen oh <laughs> there was no common ground on that but uh, he was he was lined up to uh, he was demanding a sketch from you oh really interesting <laughs> how so you and 25 years ago we were talking about how com- how like big two superhero comics was very corporate and now 25 years later one of them's owned by Disney one of them's owned by Warner Brothers right uh, and so where do you where's the where's the spot for the independent comics right now because it's it seems even more challenging to get your to get your work in front of people yes well and that is because um well the, the problem is with the print medium in general you know more people are two things people are, are spending more and more time reading and uh looking at listening to things online not only things online whether it's uh, you know it could be comics you know books online um videos but they're also used to look getting all this stuff for free you know you turn on your computer and then you've got free entertainment all the live long day um so there's less and less reason for people to go to bookstores and comic shops so in a way it's it's, it's remarkable that uh that uh, the publishing world, the print world, still exists, and that it's as large as it is. It shows how dedicated—not everybody, but a lot of people—are to the print medium. Um, and it also, but it also at the same time has meant that comic shops and bookstores and record stores as well—they've had to be super resourceful and and uh, and do all kinds of things like with free comic book day and and lots of signing lots of events, multimedia events, or even just simply having a comic shop that also sells uh, lattes, you know, <laughs> anything, the, all these, tr- you have to pull all these tricks just to get people to come to the store. So yeah, you have to make it an event. It's much, it's much more event driven than it used to be just enough to simply say, here's a comic shop and here are the hours, come on down. Now you, they have to really do all kinds of things to get people in the door. So, uh, so that, and that's a, a problem, an ongoing and ever changing problem for both indies and mainstream publishers. Other than that though, uh, the strange, the very strange thing about independent comics um, is there are more cartoonists than ever. Whether I go to a mainstream show or an indie show, I'm just flabbergasted at the size of the artist alleys. Like, have any of you been to the Emerald City Comic Con? Um, not yet. But the, uh, the one whole floor of the Seattle Convention Center, just one whole floor is Artist Alley. It's just massive. And I, you know, I'm always like, 
if I was a young cartoonist just starting out, I even this is kind of rude and mean, but I even said it to these younger cartoonists who were sitting next to me at uh, at the Calgary show. Is uh, some of them had been to the one of them at least uh, showed at the Emerald City Comic Con. And I was like, if I was in your situation and I was just starting out and I walked into an artist alley like that, I would just be like, forget it. I give up. (laughs) 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 There are so, I cannot believe how many cartoonists there are. And uh, so who who knows what that means for the future of comics, but there there at least are more creators than there ever were, like way more creators. So in that sense, in that sense alone, the field is exploding. What that means business-wise, professionally, who knows? A lot of them, too, especially like when I was talking about these indie Comic-Cons, where not just me, but hardly anybody's really making much money. It is very much a social thing. A lot of the, like when I think about how most of these artists, they pay their own way to get there. They paid for their table, even if the tables at those shows are much cheaper. You know, they, they um, they're, you know, lots of the times they, piled in the car with a bunch of their buddies. They're sharing a hotel room with a bunch of those buddies or they're couch surfing. And, uh, you know, and then they set up shop at this Comic-Con and, you know, they're, most of them are really making very little money. If you make 500 bucks, you had a great weekend. Uh, so the question is, why are they doing it? And much, a lot of it is just simply, if not the sole reason is uh, it's social. It's like, you want to see your tribe. That's where your tribe is at, you know, that's where your peeps are. And uh, so at least you, it's like a, it's like the one place where you don't have to explain yourself. You don't have to explain <laughs> who you are, what you're doing, why you're doing it. Everybody in this room is doing the same thing. Everybody understands. So it's it's social more than anything else, you know. Yeah, I totally see that because because uh, when we see when we go and we walk up and down the aisles, we see a lot of the creators will be popping around and talking to other creators. I mean, I've even seen panels where I think the creators were more interested in talking to the guy beside them than they were to the actual audience in this case. But, uh, right. Yeah, it's it's so visible. Well, geez, it's so many. I, mean, I personally, if, 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 if somebody invites me to a show, and especially if they pay my way, if... Uh, and they asked me to do a panel or take part on a panel. I'll never say no. I feel it would be rude of me to say no. So if, if they want me to do that, I always say yeah. Other than that, I'm not really crazy about doing panels because uh, when you're on the there's, there are exceptions, but more often than not, especially like a really big show like the Calgary show that we all were just at, when you're up on stage and you're looking out on the audience, I would say 90% of the people are just resting their feet and they're going through their bags, just re, you know, going over their checklists and recount, looking at comics that they just bought, and <laughs> they're texting on their phones. Like, so when it seems like the pe- the other panelists are more interested that, with whoever's talking, what they're saying, it's like, yeah, that is true. Lots of times, the other people on the panel are the only ones paying attention to whoever is talking. <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, I, oh, go ahead, Brett. Well, I was going to say, I know at Calgary they put you with uh, Will Sportatio on, on the panel, so it's just like yeah. And I was very, you know, and he's very mainstream, but I was still, yeah. I was, and he did most of the talking, and I, and that I was totally fine with that because at least there were a handful of people in the audience who were interested in him, and when they did take questions from the audience, and it was mainly like just this one guy just had a million questions for Will's. but uh, but because I knew that the audience was more interested in him, I was like fine with letting. <laughs> Uh, well, so but you know he's 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 totally immersed in in the mainstream world, and so when he would talk about what's happening, you know, business wise in that world, and uh, and how an art a creator like him, like how he's navigating the changes, I found that I I was very interested in everything he had to say because it was most of it was news to me, you know. Can you can you learn from other not not artistically but business wise? Do you spend a lot of time learning from other creators? Well, yeah. For example, um, uh, I was sitting next to an artist who, uh, uh, what's his name, John Dun- Dunleavy, um, who you, you always drew for for years and years, mainly drew from Bongo. He was doing. Um, oh yeah, John Delaney. Yeah, John Delaney. He uh, sorry, and he's and he was telling me that. I, I didn't even know this. He says that Bongo is shutting down. Oh. And I said, well, is this going to screw you up? And he says, he 
He says, well, no, not really, because he's starting something new. He's got investors behind it, and he's much uh, he's much more tech savvy than I am, certainly. So he's starting something new that uh, is um, it, it's it's like a streaming comics, and you subscribe to it online. And when you look at it, it's very much like a hybrid. It's a cross between print comics, like regular or like a web comic, let's say, and animation. So it kind of moves. You could using your mouse, using uh, your the tools. You can scroll across the scene. You can hit, you could hit you could tap the uh, screen and make all the word balloons and captions disappear, and then tap them again and they'll reappear. And uh, and they'll be like so if there's a scene with snow. You know, the characters are still, but they'll have snow falling. And I asked him if I go, have you tested this out on viewers? Do people like this hybrid or do most people kind of wish it was still do a lot of people wish it was just like a web comic and not having anything moving or do or do they also wish it was fully animated instead of being partially animated or do people like this hybrid? And he says he goes, almost everybody says they like this hybrid. They like this cross between the two and uh, and that they find it very easy to navigate and and uh and he says so i've got investors behind me and uh, a lot of what he was doing not surprisingly is is more action adventure driven but he told me if you want to try it out he says at least you know starting out the it's funny that he uses the term page rates but basically another artist who is going to do stuff for him told him well, he told me I'm going to do some stuff for him. And yeah, basically it is you are like doing pages when you're drawing the thing. You are drawing pages that you hand to him and then and then they take it from there. And he says uh, he says the page rates are very competitive. It's like better than what most people are paying, because from my experience with the print medium, uh, the pay keeps getting worse and worse, you know, and it's tied to sales continually going down and that's just not with mainstream publishers it's with everybody you know advances and page rates keep going down so when, every time i go to a show i'll meet uh, there's always somebody who i'll talk to who uh will present something like that that at least potentially could uh keep me uh pay my rent <laughs> who knows year or two you know so you know i may actually you know approach him who knows i might wind up approaching him about doing something because he said he's open to it but that's just something almost something like that almost always happens at if not at every show at every other show there's, there's somebody's always everybody's always trying to think of a new way to make money and a new way to reach readers so uh you know there's always something new around the corner well, you talked earlier about um, about like the thought of changing your art style, and I'm and I'm wondering because you've spent so long working with your art style, how easy would that be to do? To change it, to alter it? Yeah. Well, I imagine you know, well, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. I'm sure it'd be really hard. <laughs> <laughs> you know, at, at this point, geez, if, if that guy felt like oh, the only way I could keep working is if I come up with a new drawing style, I would just, if it re reaches that point, it'd be easier for me just to leave comics and I don't know, get a job at uh, a big box store, you know. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, it's like, uh, but like I said before, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't want to. I realize that. And this is inevitable. As the older I get, the way I draw too, it's also perceived, for lack of a better word, it's perceived, especially by younger people, as an quote-unquote old-fashioned drawing style. And I'll even hear that with people who casually pass by my table, you know, younger people, if they look at uh, my work. Um, uh, they're like, oh, yeah, look at this old-fashioned stuff. <laughs> or else they'll be like younger people too. They'll be like, uh, you draw like... What's the guy? What's the guy? Who is that guy? And they're always they're either talking about Robert Crumb or Big Daddy Roth. So if I go in there next time, they go or Basil Wolfton, they go, yeah. It's like they're they're even too young to really even fully recall the guy that I draw like. You know? The guy you watched the documentary on on Netflix five years ago. That's who you're thinking of. It's interesting though because I, I don't know. Did you when you were starting out? There's no question, but like hate had an influence you you influenced other other artists that came up uh, behind you just like you were influenced by those people you've mentioned and did you did you ever conceive of that did you ever conceive doing the books that you'd be doing doing a book like hate would have an influence on on a new generation well i i saw it almost immediately with a lot of my peers people maybe my age a little bit younger 
but uh, at least format wise, they would um, they would use hate more or less as a template to uh, to rethink their own comics, and they would and a lot of what. Yeah, of course, I'd like to think they were doing it because my because hate was so fantastic. But they also <laughs> were doing it because hate was selling really well for a while. There it was arguably like the best selling indie comic in the early '90s. So of course, people would want to, you know, to capture some of that magic. So they would, you know, so not and it didn't bother me at all. I was was not the least bit annoyed. I was flattered that uh, they would adopt certain things. Um, from the hate formula, for lack of a better word, and and incorporate it in their own comics. And then sometimes it would pay off for them, other times it didn't, you know. I, one of the things that I'm actually interested in uh, is your music, because, I mean, you've, you've worked with the action suits, you've got Can You Imagine, um, you know, you've done a lot of album covers. Um, you know, what what's it like you know, working in music as well. And do you, how, how often do you work in music? Well, I, it's interesting when I was young, you know, I was a rock and roll fanatic when I was a teenager and I loved the idea of doing record covers. I, you know, I never thought it would actually happen again because I, you know, even back then I wanted to draw in this cartoony style and most people don't want cartoony art on their record covers. Um, but I was thrilled when, when I started getting uh, offers to do record covers. And it's usually, interestingly, it's usually 45 covers. Yeah. And, and it's usually, uh, and it's almost always um, indie labels. I've only done a handful of covers for for the major labels. But yeah, I love doing it. And I still, every year, I, I find myself doing one or two record covers for people. Um, but I've, uh, and then like, as you mentioned, I was the drummer briefly in a band called the action suits. And then, uh, we've, we're not active anymore, but for a, roughly a 10 year period, I was the, a guitarist in another band called can you imagine? And, uh, but you know, both of those bands, they were largely, they were hobbies, you know, like in can you imagine only one member, uh, is a professional musician, everybody else, the rest of us, including me, it was just a hobby. Um, we just would practice on weekends, you know, do a handful of shows at the most, maybe do like a live show a month, like at the most and whatever money we would make from shows with both bands, whatever money we would make from shows, we would save that and then use that to record with and put out a record with. Yeah, that's, yeah, it's, it's always interesting because I know there's a lot of guys in comics that play. So I'm, yeah. I'm always intrigued by the by the amount of time that they're willing to put in or can put in. Yeah. Right. And, uh, um, yeah, I'm always surprised when I meet, when I befriend a cartoonist that doesn't play a musical. (laughs) 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 Yeah. Almost everybody, almost every cartoonist I know, you know, there's only a handful I could think of uh, almost all of them are or were in bands at one point or another playing all different kinds of music, you know, in some, some were more ambitious about the music aspects than others. You know, some there are some cartoonists I've known who where the music came first, where their band was uh, was they were more invested in than their comic art. Usually, it'd be usually it would be like it's when they were younger. You know, when they were in their twenties or so, they'd be much more into the band. And then, uh, but you know, that's just. You know, it's a more than much more than comics. Music is a young man's game. You know, you can run out of gas pretty easily. Uh, you get sick of it really. Like I never, with my very very limited experience doing shows and dealing with record labels, even if it's these indie record labels, I would hate being a professional musician. <laughs> that is a, that's a grueling way to attempt to make a living. It's that's a, that's a really rough road to hoe. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. <laughs> um, one of the things that I was interested in, um, in you being a libertarian and, and a rather outspoken one, does the, do you find that that may hinder your job prospects sometimes? Funny they ask that because, of course, nobody, of course, nobody ever has, and I would assume nobody ever will say to me, "We thought about hiring you for something, but we're not because you're a libertarian." <laughs> <laughs> But what makes me what makes me paranoid is that people that is that people ask me that question all the time. So it's like, 
well, geez, should I be paranoid? (laughs) Who knows? Maybe. I don't know. You know, I don't know if there's, if if somebody's on the fence about, they're thinking me or somebody else, but they're also like, oh my God, but I can't stand that Pete Beggs politics. So (laughs) let's go with this other person. I mean, maybe that happens, but at the same time too, you know, one of my best ongoing gigs over the last uh, almost 20 years now is doing stuff for reason. And I do stuff for reason because I share the politics. Reason Magazine, that is, which yeah. is a very libertarian publication. And I tend to be, you know, it's it's like uh, some people even, I, there's so many subdivisions of almost every political stripe. And that, that there's a term called cosmetarian. It's sort of like a... Like with a lot of people, when you think libertarian, you think of some guy that's in the oil industry or cattle industry and, you know, the don't tread on me type. And the guy was the gun collection and the cowboy hat, you know, um, and and uh, other than maybe a certain basic political philosophy, I have, you know, culturally, I have zero in common with those people, whereas everybody that works for reason, they live in big cities like New York and L.A. and D.C. and Seattle. You know, it's, then they drink white wine instead of beer. <laughs> <laughs> and they also and, and socially, culturally, socially, they're very liberal, you know. So, you know, it's like I like for the last, as you probably know, Seattle is a, is a very leftist, a very left wing progressive city. And I lived in Seattle for now. I live just right down the road. In, in Tacoma, but uh, I lived in it for decades and I, I was perfectly comfortable there. I was very comfortable living there um, socially. Um, I had no trouble mixing and mingling and I was an artist and artist types are even more than the, than the general population tend to be left leaning. But yeah, I have no trouble mixing and mingling with folks like that. I'd be far less comfortable if I lived in a place like say Houston, not to rag in Houston, but uh, yeah, it's like I, I am more comfortable around uh, people who at least culturally and socially are very liberal. Yeah, I guess the libertarians that I think of are uh, Penn and Teller. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, well, he's another one. You know, he's <laughs> creative types, but at the same time, and I'm sure 99% of his friends probably describe themselves as leftist progressive types. Yeah. I think it's but, a question which is true I... with me. That's true with me as well. It's a question that came up from uh, uh, Chris, one of our other co-hosts who couldn't make it today. Uh, you know, reading early issues of hate and some of the things before uh it came up of like how would how would this be received today because i i do have a tendency to feel today that uh that there's there's an uh, an inclination to get offended quickly yes there sure is and unfortunately here's the sad thing about that and sorry i hope i'm not cutting your question short no no go ahead um that is it's it's a it's a very vocal minority that gets offended very easily, but they use social media platforms, particularly Twitter, as uh, as its megaphone. Mm-hmm. You know, so like when when they get offended and they talk about and they say why they're offended and who offended them and what offended them, when they when they broadcast that on Twitter, their voice seems far more louder and far more intimidating than it really should be. People tend to overreact to to the, the complainers most people are not offended by these things but but it's got but these uh, but the easily offended they've got everybody intimidated mm-hmm. um what i think what everybody is going to have to learn to do you know like publishers filmmakers uh broadcasters they they they're going to have to learn for their own sake for their own benefit they're going to have to learn not to react so quickly to the easily offended, they pander to them way too quickly, and then that makes and then that makes everybody think twice about what they should publish, what they shouldn't publish, and that makes artists queasy. It's like, well, you're not you're suddenly not really writing about what you want to write about or saying it exactly the way you want to say it, because not so much that you're afraid that somebody online will be offended, because of, of course somebody's going to be offended by everything, but you're afraid that nobody would publish it. You know, you're 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 thinking not so much about that anonymous troll out in the Twitterverse. You're thinking about publishers because you're imagining that the publisher is worried about those people out there, you know. So everybody has to learn to just ignore them. (laughs) 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 But we're still not there yet, unfortunately. Yeah. We're still going in the opposite direction, tragically. Yeah, I'd found that uh, just a few months ago at Dave McKean book got pulled before publication 
because of pushback, primarily on Twitter. Uh, but if you dug through it, it was probably 10 people. Right. Uh, it was a very, very small group, but the publisher pulled it within a day. And, but, and also people, you know, it was like, even, even like one of my own publishers, and then I was and I was talking to like somebody who is very involved in, in like a comics, who writes about comics a lot. And both my publisher and also both talking to this comic journalist, they both had like fairly recently would say to me, aren't you worried about, doesn't it scare you when you read people trashing you on uh, on uh, Twitter? And I'm like, no, it's like, you're talking about, like it's like a small handful of people. And, and when they crap on me or make these accusations, it's always completely unfounded. They never once will use a single example. They just throw, they just, you know, label me with all these, the usual bad words, but there's no examples. They don't present one example. They're just simply saying it. They are literally, I shouldn't say literally, but they probably, they're just talking out of their asses. You know, they just want to sound tough. You know, they want to be self-righteous. And also, it's like, when they say stuff like that, they'll, they, they'll get three, ten likes. And I'm like, and I'm supposed to be afraid of that? It's like, it's not, I go, why? It's so weird that they're afraid. It's like, why are you afraid of these? But you're, so many people are afraid on my behalf. And it's interesting. They're really, really concerned and worried. And they're, and they're on my side, but they're way overly concerned on my behalf. Only because every now and then, if you go, and you have to look for it, you know, somebody will call me a bad word and three people will agree. <laughs> I, I, I actually want to be called a bad word on Twitter more. You know, Not these bad words. Yeah, well, I suppose. You said something about a Denver story and I can't remember what it was. Yeah, well, because you, you oh, would yeah. talked, you would talk to, told us uh, because your leg hurt about, uh, about, try, about getting uh, offered, uh, what was it? Was it a cookie or a brownie, a pot brownie? <laughs> right. Oh, you want me to tell that story? Huh? The pot, <laughs> well, the it pot, was very funny. It's a pot cookie, yeah, when you were trying to, right. uh, you were eating it and it wasn't having effect. Right. Oh, yeah. When I... God, I'm trying to think. This was like a short while after Colorado, just the same as here as Washington State, five or six years ago. I, I can't even remember now how long ago it was. Yeah, I was in Denver for the first time for a Comic Con, and uh, uh, and a longtime friend of mine, she, uh, she got into the uh, the uh, pot brownie making business, which was totally legal by then. So there I was at this Comic Con, and uh, she said, "Do you want to?" sample of my wares and I was like I don't know I just got here at the show you know I got to work the con so uh um I don't think it'd be a good idea if I indulged in edible and she goes I'll just try a little bit she goes it's pretty mellow so I was like okay so I took that teeny tiny piece of uh of one of her brownies and I felt nothing it had zero effect on me you know but I didn't want to insult her so I said I told she said did you like it I go yeah no it was fine yeah I wanted to tell her that I didn't feel a thing so then uh, at the end of the show, um, I was starting to pack up and I was complaining. I was like, oh, this is this is the worst is when you got to pack everything up again, all the stuff that didn't sell and drag it back home. And she goes, oh, you should. Uh, she was no to make the trip back home a lot easier. She goes, why don't you try another one of my uh, pop brownies again? And I was like, well, I said, OK, sure. And I, you know, so again, I took I probably an even bigger piece because I figured it'd be like the other one where I just wouldn't feel anything. So I took another bite, packed all my stuff up, went to the airport, went through security, everything, had some time to kill. So I sat down in a restaurant to and ordered a hamburger. And then all of a sudden I got so stoned. <laughs> it hit me like a ton of bricks. I was just like, oh, my God. I remember when the waitress was taking my order, I just kept thinking, she's got to know. She's got to be able to tell that I am completely out of my mind. You're, you're in Denver. She can't tell because she's so high, too. <laughs> it, was, it was by far the most stoned I ever was in my life. So, uh, then, and then later on, I, I got an email from, from my friend saying, so, you know, how was the trip back? And, and uh did you enjoy that last edible I give you? And I told her, you have got to mix those brownies a lot better. Because <laughs> one had nothing in it, and the other one must have been like all pot. <laughs> awesome. I and, do. And, Good stuff. And you managed to get, it was just fascinating because you got into a conversation with about Thor, the Canadian singer, when right. you were here at the Calgary Expo. 
Right. Was that one of you guys? I can't remember who I was talking about. No, 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 but, but it could have been, is the point. It could have been, yeah. That's, that's why we're amazed. That's right. Wanna... I had to, when, going, this is going like the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s, it was kind of like my my first tribe. There was a handful of cartoonists I used to hang out with. And it was all it was all the people that used to put up Punk Magazine back in the late 70s. They The staff of Punk Magazine was almost entirely cartoonists. And, um, and all of them, but particularly one of them, this guy who used to go by the name Ken Wiener, who was like a really good friend of mine. He, like, it was partly a joke. He thought Thor was funny, but he also really, truly loved Thor. So did this other guy, John Holmstrom. John Holmstrom is famous as the cartoonist who did those early Ramones covers. The two, and they would play... They would pull out Thor's album with the one with like keeping the dogs away. <laughs> they would build, at parties. They'd pull that record out and I'd look at that cover with Thor, you know, with being shirtless and he had all these Doberman pinchers or something on leashes. And they'd be playing the record and they'd be going nuts. And then I would just be like, "You guys can't be serious. <laughs> oh, this is so bad." But they, they they adored him, and they'd always. What did he used to blow up a hot water bottle? Yes, yeah. that's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, 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 yeah. Didn't he like hurt himself doing that? Had like a heart attack or something? He, he may not be the smartest guy, <laughs> but he's dedicated. That's part of he why was, we love him, right? Yeah, yeah. Somebody told me that like he had a heart attack, so I said, "Well, I guess that's it for him going on stage and blowing up hot water bottles." And they said, "No, he still does it." Yeah. <laughs> Nothing's stopping them. <laughs> <laughs> just you just no have to warm up first. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, that's awesome. Well, we we uh, we are also would hope to talk to you about Kim Thompson. But Thompson. tell you the truth, maybe, maybe that's what I said. <laughs> okay. What were you gonna What were you gonna ask me about Kim Thompson? We just, we just well, we just wanted to to talk to you about it. But you know what? Honestly, maybe it is best uh, someday we can uh, talk and get get a little bit more into uh, into depth on it because okay, sure. I'm sure it's uh. Uh, something you could, I'm sure you have a lot to, to you have stories you could share. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, guy, when he was alive, he used to drive me crazy. I was mad at him more often than not. But of course, <laughs> you know, the perspective is all different once he passed away. Yeah, I still miss him terribly. Yeah. He's a great guy, he's an amazing person. But, uh, all right. Well, I, like I said, I should get going, but it was, I had a lot of fun. I hope you're happy with uh, the way it all came out. Oh, this was excellent. You know, it's, it's Keith's birthday. So you're, you're our birthday gift to him. And we That's didn't even have to draft you for anything. <laughs> right. Just don't ask me to do a Marilyn Monroe rendition. <laughs> <laughs> well, we won't do that, but we will. I might. <laughs> We will ask you to plug. What would tell people where where to get your 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 products, Peter? Okay. Well, my latest book, which is again, it's Credo, uh, subtitled "The Rose Wilder Lane Story," just that hot off the presses from Join and Quarterly, a Canadian-based publishing company. So you can go to Join and Quarterly's own website, or of course you can go to Amazon, and uh, just about all of my books are available on Amazon. If it's in print, you can get it there. Um, and also, an awful lot of what probably most of the work I've done has been published by Fantagraphics. So if you go to Fantagraphics website, you can order, and you want to order directly from the publisher, which I know a lot of people prefer to do, uh, you just go to either Fantagraphics.com or joinandquarterly.com and uh, search my name, and you'll find a lot of product there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, we truly appreciate it, and uh, and absolutely, we look forward to uh, bringing you on again to talk some more. Uh, maybe maybe go back to the Fantagraphics days a little bit, the early days a little bit more. So, Peter Bag, thanks so much. Much it's been hilarious, awesome oh, time. Thanks a lot. Thanks, I enjoyed it. Take care. All right, you yes. too. Bye bye. Thanks, Peter. Bye now. <laughs>